Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. From their first gigs in Melbourne bars to the stages of international festivals, Cut Copy has taken the dance and indie rock worlds by storm. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. The band Cut Copy performs live in our studio. Plus, we review the latest from experimental pop pioneer Bjork. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. You know, you gotta love the theme song to Laverne and Shirley. And Laverne, who was played by Penny Marshall, has written a memoir that will be one of the first books published by Amazon.com as it moves from being the dominant internet retailer to being a book publishing company. According to the New York Times, they paid her $800,000 for her story, and they're going to put out more than 100 books in year one. Why is this interesting to the world's only rock and roll talk show, Greg? Because there's a lot of speculation in the industry that Amazon's next step will be toward becoming a music company, a music label, a producer of recordings, as well as a retailer. This is not unusual. In recent years, we have seen the big chain stores Target, Best Buy, and Walmart partner with artists to put out new material where once they would have turned to a record company. Amazon is uniquely positioned to do this, is predicted to be able to grab 50% of the U.S. book market by the end of 2012. Will they ever become as big as a music distribution production company as they are as a book company? By Billboard's estimates, it's going to be really hard to compete with iTunes, which is now 33% of the U.S. recorded music market, and uh, Walmart is at 10%. However, you know, it makes a lot of sense to some people if I'm going to have to partner with somebody because I don't want to handle all the business of putting out my recordings. Why not turn to Amazon? Mm. 
forefathers, yeah, the street authors. That are now A&Rs in the cheap office. Rappers that never got signed, but they keep offers. Girls, it's way too fine for us to keep offers. That's the song called The Joy from the latest collaboration between Jay-Z and Kanye West, Watch the Throne. Now, Syl Johnson, a semi-famous blues and R&B musician from the 60s and 70s, who has continued to record uh, since then, just had a huge box set put out by the Numero Group here in Chicago, is a serial litigator, and he is coming after Kanye and Jay-Z for sampling one of his songs on The Joy. That song would be Different Strokes. Now, this song is one of Sill's most famous compositions. It has been sampled numerous times by numerous artists over the decades. It was a key track for a number of hip-hop tracks. Sill has gone after almost every one. And he will talk about it in interviews. I've made a lot of money going after people who have sampled my music without authorization. He said to me one time that uh, he and Wu-Tang Clan agreed to have them pay him a quarter million dollars for a series of samples they use on just one of their albums. He says, my retirement's all set, and it all is coming from this money through litigating samples. Now he's coming after Kanye and Jay-Z. It seems like a big hole in their arsenal. Usually these artists are very fastidious about this sort of thing. In this case, Phil Johnson said, no, no, uh, Kanye, you already tried to use a sample of different strokes on your previous solo album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. You couldn't get clearance for it then. Now you're using it without clearance on the joy. I'm coming after you. More news in the world of music, Jim. Big news for Stone Roses fans. One of the big bands out of uh, England in the late 80s, early 90s, defined that Madchester scene out of Manchester. They were in some ways Oasis before Oasis. But some fans argue that they broke up before their time was up. Now fans will get a chance to see them yet again. John Squire, Manny, Ian Brown, and Rennie, uh, original members of the Stone Roses, held a big press conference in the U.K. a few days ago, basically announcing that they are going to reunite. They're going to play a bunch of shows in 2012. No word yet about a potential studio album, but I imagine something like that will be in the works. It remains to be seen whether this band will have improved upon its somewhat dicey reputation as a live act. Ian Brown, not a guy who could exactly hold a tune in concert. One of their last concerts, a big festival show in Reading in 1996, when Squire and Rennie were already out of the band, an infamous disaster, ending the band's career on a bad note. Now they get a chance to make it up to the fans. We'll see if they're up to it. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song Take Me Over by our guest this week, Cut Copy. 
The Australian Quartet was a fixture on the summer festival circuit this year, playing the big crowds at Pitchfork, Celebrate Brooklyn, and Coachella. Fans who dance their way through those upbeat electronic pop sets might find it hard to believe that the group started out as a low-key affair. It was the bedroom project of Melbourne-based graphic designer and DJ Dan Whitford. He added guitars and keyboards to the mix later on and was joined by guitarist Tim Hoey, drummer Mitchell Scott, and bassist Ben Browning. Together, they combined the live energy and musical chops of a classic pop group with electronic dance beats, and the whole group recently stopped by our studio to perform live. We began by asking lead singer Dan Whitford how the group started. I, I studied at art school. I did graphic design. Um, sort of simultaneously got into music pretty heavily and I actually had a radio show myself on student radio for a while. Got bored of that and wanted to do something even more creative. So just started mucking around with synthesizers and drum machines in my bedroom. Is there something more creative than radio? <laughs> this may surprise you, but yes. <laughs> oh yeah, no. So, so I guess that's the genesis of Cut Copy as a project, but it probably wasn't until 2004, 2005 that I actually started working with um, Tim and Mitchell. Now the DJ culture, obviously a huge part of, of the band and its appeal. I understand DJs make pretty darn good money if they know what they're doing. So you could have easily made this a one-man operation and probably done quite fine uh, on your own. What made you want to turn it into a band? I guess some people can DJ pretty creatively and make that something that people can engage with. But I was always more interested, or I guess as interested, in electronic music as I was in live music and guitar-based music. So for me, it seemed like a much more interesting path to try and um, find a way of transferring what I was working on at home into sort of a live context rather than just twiddling knobs by myself on stage. sounds like you'd been to a few raves and a few of those scenes and said it's not that exciting to watch i mean you're just taking it from a fan perspective yourself i would imagine yeah exactly exactly and i think that's probably the the blueprint for cut copy in the beginning was sort of combining some of the elements that i liked about dance music but also sort of the things that i liked about indie music guitar based music as well and sort of making them work together and i guess at the time it probably felt like those two scenes were pretty separate whereas now you see people combining those things all the time Absolutely. And I know in Europe, it's, it's pretty common, uh, the combination of those two things. In America, there's been a very big separation of that. Although, you know, now LCD sound system has since it broken through that. When you were starting Cut Copy, what was the reality of that in, say, Australia? What was it like there? I mean, it was completely divided. Probably there would be just a handful of bands that were doing music that, to me, had the, the right sensibility, both from a dance perspective and also a band-oriented perspective. The avalanches were a, were a big influence on me at the time and, and probably all of us. What does that mean? You're a nut. You're crazy in the coconut. What does that mean? That boy needs therapy. I'm going to kill you. That boy needs therapy. Granny Gazoo, let's have it to you. I want to count three. That, that, that 
that, that boy, boy needs therapy. <laughs> he was white as a sheep. And he also made false teeth. Another one called Girling that was around at the time as well. Not as big overseas, but um, uh, it definitely felt like something that was a, a new thing at the time and, and something that I guess for us seemed like a statement to be made. What about the music scene in Melbourne? It is a great music scene, a lot of clubs to play, good place for a new band to be coming up. Yeah, no, it's, it's really good. As far as the cities in Australia, probably has the most venues for live bands to play. And as a result, there's, there's always been a pretty good scene in Melbourne for live music. Certainly when when we started, there were a lot of bands going around, maybe not bands that sounded like us, but there was certainly a lot of music and, and a lot of music coming out of Melbourne. You know, the, the reputation I think that Australia has in America is this is a rough and rowdy country. Uh, you got to show and prove. You cannot get away with being any old band at a bar because they're going to kill you. They're going to throw bottles at you and then they're going <laughs> to, the biker gang is going to be waiting outside and they're going to beat you up afterward. Well, if you ever listen to like the Celibate Rifles or the Saints or Lime yeah. Spiders, or, yeah, I mean, you <laughs> know, and the AC- bands we love. Yeah. A- ACDC would have all these great stories and maybe we're talking about backward history, but it's like the image of Chicago survives from the 30s depression era. There's gangsters here. They'll, they'll, they'll kill you, you know. So, <laughs> so what is the reality of uh, the Melbourne or, or just the Australian bar scene, you know, for a beginning band? Do you have to really work extra hard to win over the crowd there i think when we started it felt like we had to work a bit harder just because there wasn't really a scene for our kind of music you know it felt like we were sort of the the ugly duckling that wasn't really adopted by the dance scene or the rock scene mm-hmm. it was sort of somewhere in between and i guess it was a bit hard to sort of find acts to support or to just to play with generally so we played with some pretty unlikely um <laughs> bands you know unlikely styles of music you know sort of more hardcore bands we played with djs but it was interesting because I think we, when we went away to record our, our second album uh, in Ghost Colors, we were in New York for a couple of months. Just before we left, we actually released a single, Hearts on Fire in Australia, thinking it might just sort of connect with a few of our old fans and make them realize that we're still around. And then we came back and it was this huge underground club hit. sudden uh, the scene that we were were in which we thought was actually quite a small one became one of the more dominant ones in Australia so almost sort of overnight it seemed like um, we'd become a a big time band in our own country and I think that yeah the record went to number one when it came out it was strange for us because I think we never thought we'd actually be big in Australia. I have a million other questions to ask you especially about the pop end of things but uh, why don't we hear a tune first what are you going to play Dan? Uh, I think we're going to kick things off with uh, Where I'm Going a track from our new record. Excellent. Don't 
That was Where I'm Going by Cut Copy, live on Sound Opinions. We'll continue our conversation with Cut Copy in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, it's Greg's turn at the Desert Island Jukebox. Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and you've been listening to our conversation with the Australian electro-pop group Cut Copy. The band stopped by our studio to perform songs from its third studio release, Zonoscope, an album notable not just for the sheer number of hooks packed in there, but for the way it harkens back to 70s pop, the infectious enthusiasm of early disco, and the slick production of groups like ABBA and Fleetwood Mac. I asked lead singer Dan Whitford whether achieving that 70s AM pop sheen was a goal from the beginning. Um, I don't know whether it was a goal. I mean, I think it's sort of been something that's been consistent throughout. Um, I'd sort of felt like that was an era of music, particularly around sort of the early 2000s that was a little bit neglected and maybe didn't get the sort of kudos that it deserved. Mm. I've sort of always felt like there's some pretty amazing weird stuff going on in a lot of those 70s pop tunes, you know, whether it's sort of Steve Miller Band or Mm -hmm. Fleetwood Mac or... ELO, like the production on ELO's records is just pretty phenomenal. You know, ELO is not a hip name to drop, ever. <laughs> but you have the courage of your convictions. Yeah. Well, it is for us. It's cool to us. But yeah, probably a lot of people would be a little bit worried about um, dropping that as an influence. But at the end of the day, like the combination of things, the way it sort of gets put back together uh, mm-hmm. in our music that, that makes it into something interesting for people. Yeah. So I want to ask Tim and, and Mitchell, who have been with the band, not from the very beginning, but came in a couple of years later, and then you started making the albums and I guess touring at that point. 
Tim, were you sort of buying into uh, the concept here, the dance and the rock? Were you coming from that sort of a background? Well, not really. I came from, I guess, more of an indie rock background. I grew up listening to bands like Sonic Youth and Pavement and Guided by Voices, and I was aware of Dan's cut copy project. You know, we'd been friends before that. And, yeah, I was like a big fan of that EP that he put out. He knew I played a little bit of guitar, and when it came time to write Bright Like Neon Love, he kind of asked me to come over and just... Oh, he gave me a cassette tape, actually, with the demos on it, and I recorded all this live guitar and bass over the top of it on my four-track. And then Mitchell, I was living with him at the time, and he just bought a drum kit off eBay. He was probably a guitarist, first and foremost, and we just kind of got Mitchell around to play some drums over this drum machine stuff that Dan had programmed, and... Before I knew it, we were like a band and mm. we spent like two days in a studio recording all the parts and then Dan took everything to Paris to mix and then he came back and we had an album and then we started booking shows and now we're in Chicago. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't it suck when you have to go all the way to Paris to mix? <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. sounds so exotic. It oh, probably yeah. wasn't, right? You were probably sleeping on somebody's floor. Oh, and no. I mean, even that seemed pretty exotic to me at the time. Like, mm-hmm. it, was, it was actually pretty amazing having never done an album before and never been to Paris as an adult. Is it daunting? You know, we were joking before that, you know, wherever you're going to fly, except New Zealand, it's like 24 hours in a tin can. Australia is still so remote from so much of the world. Was that a daunting prospect initially in those early days, getting off that continent and going to the rest of the world? Because now you're at a point where most of this year you've been on tour. Australia is quite a big country in terms of it's, it's fairly vast. But there are only a few large cities and the yeah. rest of it's made up of smaller, you know, rural areas. And a lot of bands drive between cities in a, you know, in a van and that's their idea of touring. I think we just decided fairly early on that that wasn't something that appealed to us. We just decided that we'd try touring overseas um, and that we were all prepared to commit pretty much fully to being a band without ideas of sort of making money or things like that from it. So we'd do things that wouldn't sort of make a lot of sense financially. Um, <laughs> just because it was something that appealed to us to try. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. We're here in the studio with Cut Copy. How about another song, guys? What are you going to play for us? Um, I think we're going to play our, our newest single, Blink and You'll Miss a Revolution.
That was Blink and You'll Miss a Revolution from Cut Copy here at Sound Opinions. Tim, I wanted you to talk about this, too, since you were there, you know, in the early days of the live presentation with Cut Copy. After In Ghost Colors came out, as Dan was saying, suddenly something changed. There was a, a bigger audience there. I saw you guys here in the Midwest, in Chicago, Lollapalooza a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. last summer, Pitchfork Music Festival. 20,000 people out there completely losing their minds to what you guys were doing. Uh, the transition from being a little bar band in Melbourne to that, did you have to sort of build up to that, or did you always feel like we want to present this in kind of a bigger way that can sort of translate in that sort of setting? Um, I'm not really sure. I think we always kind of maintain the belief that if you're really honest with what you're doing, you'll always kind of find an audience. Uh, we found, like, especially here in America, it feels like a very grassroots way of building an audience. Like, we started touring here, like, five years ago and sm- playing small clubs and continually coming back and the crowds getting bigger and bigger each time. It wasn't like it was this overnight sensation, which I actually feel really grateful for. Like, it feels really good to kind of work really hard at something and see some kind of reward come from it. Because um, you often see these days when bands have just like blown up overnight that they can often disappear just as quickly because dealing with that kind of success straight away could be, you know, could really mess with your head. But it feels like it's really come from like a lot of hard work, the 20 hours in tin cans and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Is it sort of intimidating? Here it is, the sun setting at in Grant Park in Chicago and this vast crowd. Is it intimidating or exciting? Um, well, ultimately exciting. Like, I think maybe the five minutes before you go on stage is quite intimidating. I think actually Ben threw up. (laughs) Probably didn't want me to say that, but he threw up before that show. But then once we got out there, it just happened so quickly and someone might send you a video from the show. Like, oh, wow, is that what it was like? Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Who were those guys on stage? Yeah. (laughs) So Ben, was it just bad Thai food or or what what happened? Yeah, I think it was, um, it was probably the last or second last show of a four week tour that had been fairly fun filled so i think my it was a combination of nerves and uh my body just punishing me for my behavior too much fun <laughs> yeah. plus it was 103 in the shade yeah that was brutally hot that day this third album zonoscope i gotta ask you what is what is a zonoscope we had this idea of in working on the record that um a lot of the songs are sort of fairly atmospheric maybe just because the instrumentation sort of felt like they were coming from some sort of imagined other place, like a weird, tropical, surreal location. I think the more that we worked on them, the more that we had this sort of vision of a place that this music was sort of happening in. So for the album titles, it's almost like this looking glass to see into this world that we've been inhabiting for the mm-hmm. period of, of making the record and this glass or sort of lens we called the Zonoscope. That's, that's where that came from. Since you started alone in a bedroom with your machines, do you write now in a way or present songs to your bandmates in a way where you're imagining holes that they'll fill? I mean, how does it come together as a group? I'll just kind of keep working on tracks until I can't think of anything else <laughs> mm. to do with it. And then, you know, basically handball it to the other guys and say, this is my take on it. What do you guys think? And do you have the trust in them that they can say, I'm just going to erase this track and let's put this in instead and take it in a whole different direction? 
Oh, no, I, I would definitely back everything up before I handle it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't trust them that much. Okay. <laughs> well, why don't we hear another song? Why don't you tell us what you're going to play? Okay, I think we're going to play uh, Need You Now.
That was Need You Now, live on Sound Opinions. We've been in the studio here at Sound Opinions with Cut Copy. Thank you, gentlemen, for being our guests. No, thank Likewise. you for yeah, yeah, having us. I really appreciate it. Check out video of Cut Copy's performance at soundopinions.org. And we want to hear from you. What tracks are getting you out on the dance floor this year? Share your thoughts on that or anything in the music universe by calling 888-859-1800. Coming up, Greg and I delve into Bjork's latest high-concept experiment, Biophilia. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My co-host is Greg Cott. And that is the single Crystalline by Bjork from the eighth album of her solo career, Biophilia. Greg, Bjork started out spanning that period from the indie rock 80s into the alternative rock 90s with the Sugar Cubes. A phenomenal start to a wonderful solo career with that trio of albums debut in 1993, Post in 1995 and Homogenic in 1997. Made a lot of records since, but there's been a longer wait between each of them. Produced by one of your heroes, uh, in part, Timbaland. We've been waiting. What's Bjork going to do next? What's the next musical thing to uh, boggle our minds like the swan dress boggled our visual senses? She's a one-of-a-kind musician from Iceland, and this is no mere album, Mr. Cott. Biophilia is a new set of artwork, it's a Michelle Gondry video, it's a set of iPad and iPhone apps, it's a live show slash music workshop, and it's a 90-minute film. There are also 10 new songs. Okay, let's play Mutual Core by Bjork from Biophilia, and we'll come back and give our opinions on Sound Opinions. I shuffle around Tectonic plates 
That's Mutual Core from Bjork and her new album, Biophilia, the eighth album in her long career. Jim, interesting here that she's presenting herself more as a science teacher than a singer. You know, she's going <laughs> to explain to us these scientific concepts, gravitational pull, the moon's effect on the tides, the interval between a lightning strike and a thunderclap. These are all issues she's discussing in these songs. And I go, she's made a career out of being kind of wiggy and weird. And, and here we go. She's the weirdest of all here. And I, and I love that quality about her, the fact that she will go out there and, and try these kinds of things. But here it seems the concept has completely outweighed the songs. Yeah. I mean, she didn't bring the songs. There's all sorts of stuff going on here, 90s drum and bass, electronic rhythms. We've got operatic choirs. Gothic organ, all these bursts of synthesized noise. I counted up the time signatures. You got 7-4, you got 6-4, you got 17-8, you got 5-4. Well, she sounds like she's having difficulty even singing over it. It seems like the, the music itself has been created, and then she's singing over the top of it, and never the twain shall meet. She's kind of wandering over the top of these musical beds, and there doesn't seem to be an actual structure there. I think this album is a total dud. I think it's the worst album of Bjork's career. It's a trash it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I heartily second your trash it. I think this is the most annoying album we've reviewed on Sound Opinions since that horrible Chris Cornell solo album. Lovers of Bjork, and I would say I am one, sometimes say this woman could sing the Reykjavik phone book and it would be great. So strong is her voice. I don't buy that. It used to be that she wrote wonderful songs. As you said, she has neglected to do that here. The other defense I'm hearing of this album is that it's a very intimate album created on an iPad. You know, so what? Damon Albarn, with that last Gorillaz record, The Fall, recorded largely on an iPad. It's, it's an effective, intimate album, and it has great songs. Those are lacking here. A double trash it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Every once in a while here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to find a little bit of solitude on the desert island with one song we can't live without today. Mr. Cott, what have you got on the Desert Island Jukebox? Jim, I wanted to pay tribute to the great British folk guitarist Bert Yonch, who died recently at the age of 67. One of the great Scottish folk guitarists of all time, his debut record in 1965, self-titled solo album, recorded at his kitchen table with a portable tape recorder, caused a mild sensation in Europe because of the impact of his guitar playing, that fingerpick style bringing together American blues, Scottish folk, and Eastern gypsy music. Nobody had ever heard that many styles of music melded together at one time, at least in that contemporary British guitar hero era that we were living in. So people like Jimmy Page were paying attention. He adapted Yanch's version of Black Waterside, an old 
folk song for that Led Zeppelin debut album. Neil Young took a song from that record, Needle of Death, and refashioned it for one of his mid-70s solo records. On and on to a host of contemporary musicians. We're talking about that freak folk movement, unfortunately named, but hugely influenced by Yancha's guitar style. Devender Banhart, Noah Jorgensen, Beth Orton, all of these modern musicians influenced by Yancha's incredible guitar picking. They came together to help Yanch record what would be his final studio album, When the Sun Comes Up, in 2006. Orton, who at one time took guitar lessons from Yanch, she was so enamored with his style, sings lead vocal on the track that I'm going to play, When the Sun Comes Up. It's from that 2006 record, and it features Orton on vocals, Yanch on guitar, along with David Roebuck of Mazzy Star, and it's a great example of what makes this guy such a revered guitar player. That's on Sound Opinions. When the sun comes up, I feel like hiding. When it goes down, show my face again. Sweetheart and child, you are my That was When the Sun Comes Up by Bert Yanch, Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick, in tribute to the musician who died at 67. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is brought to you by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, more of the scariest songs of all time in anticipation of Halloween. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Cut Copy was recorded by Adam Yaffe. Our production team is Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn with the able assistance of Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, has been dancing around the office ever since Cut Copy was here.
sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. My name is Eric. I am in Austin, Texas. I just listened to the Legacy of R.E.M. episode, and when I was listening to those songs from Automatic for the People, I was filled with such a rich sense of nostalgia. It was just amazing. It took me right back to that time of coffee houses and scenes and the indie record store and all the crappy bands I used to listen to that were just full of earnest energy, way more earnestness than skill or talent, but that was just a defining time for me, and that whole album takes me right back. Keep up the good work. Bye. Derek Martin's my name. Um, I am a listener in Bayfield, Colorado on KSUT. I'm always kind of curious and baffled as to why critics feel the need to pan the last five albums of R.E.M. It's, it's ironic because R.E.M. was nowhere on top 40 radio for the first five albums, yet their music was the greatest thing ever. Uh, their last five albums, you couldn't find their music anywhere on top 40, but yet that music was for some reason terrible. I guess I just don't quite get it. Um, R.E.M.'s music at the end was unique and still to the end, I think, very listenable. Thanks, guys. Bye. guys, it's Julie from Cleveland. In 1991, I was 12 years old. I'm at the bus stop. My neighbor asked me what my favorite band is. I said, R.E.M. He said, how many albums do you have? And that's when I realized that a band might, have re might release a series of albums other than the singles that I heard on the radio. Green was the first compact disc I bought. I used to fall asleep listening to that at night. I was R.E.M.'s biggest fan. That said... Automatic for the People was the last album that I bought, and I think their legacy ends there. I honestly, I have not listened to any of the old albums for years. It was great to hear them on your show, and perhaps it might inspire me to return to those albums, but it's sort of been a badge of shame that R.E.M. was once my favorite band, because they have certainly not been the band that I once loved. Hi guys, this is Sam from Wilmington, Ohio. Uh, I want to thank you for your great REM tribute, and I was really blown away that you started out by playing Cuyahoga, as I think it's one of their best but most unappreciated songs, and it also is the basis for my favorite REM memory. In October of 1986, I was a junior in college in northern Ohio, and my friends and I had this, a lively argument while driving to see REM at Cleveland Public Hall, and this was on the Life Search pageant tour. But the topic of our argument was, would R.E.M. play Cuyahoga that night? There were uh, folks in Cleveland who were still pretty sensitive about the fact that the Cuyahoga caught fire in 1969, and the lyric, We Burn the River Down, does not exactly put that event in a positive light. Let's put our heads together Start a new country up Underneath the riverbed What was the outcome? R.E.M. opened the show with Cuyahoga, and that was the only time they did that on the pageantry tour and probably in their whole career. 
and instantly formed a really direct and personal connection with their fans in the audience. So on top of all their beautiful music, R.E.M. was a band that really understood and respected their fans, and I will miss them for that. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.